Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people all tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account, so you can follow me at CharlieU, you spelled the normal way, CharlieUAI, and I'll be posting highlights from the podcast, so I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is CharlieUAI. I hope to see you there. Today's guest is someone who I first met over four years ago when I was considering joining Praxis, an alternative education program he was working for at the time. I didn't end up pursuing that, but I always appreciated the guidance and advice he gave me, and then years later sought him out again for career and business coaching. He wrote the excellent book, How to Get Ahead, which is one of only four career books that I can actually recommend, and runs Get Ahead Labs where he teaches his superpower of writing cold emails that get replies. And last but not least, he's a principal at 1517, a VC fund spun off of the Teal Fellowship, which invests in outstanding young founders. Please welcome Zach Slayback. Zach, I'm very excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So normally I ask about the guest's origin story to start these, but yours is pretty well covered in other podcasts. So I'll just have the listeners go listen to those first if they want to learn more. Specifically, I'll link NatChat and School Sucks since I think those were particularly good interviews. And I really do mean that your book is amazing. Like it's super actionable and falsifiable. Unlike other career books, yours is so specific that you can't really BS at that level. Like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And it's very clear. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I wrote the book intentionally because I was so frustrated with 
most career books out there, like the introduction is called why do most career books suck? <laughs> and most of them, they're just, they're, they're very long blog posts uh, that are filled with the same self-help stories here and there. And if you read enough of them, the, you know how they end up working out. So when I set out to write this book, it was like, okay, this is going to be a very different kind of career book. So a lot of people who love career books and love business books may not love it. But if you want something that will actually give you real tangible steps to get to the next step in your career or to make a transition in your career, then that's what I set out to write. Yeah, and it does a really great job of that. So I want to start with a like very broad level overview of the six-step framework that you lay out in the book. But before that, it seems to me that a common thread running throughout the entire book is the guiding principles of like opportunity cost, signaling, and incentives. So can you talk a little bit about those three concepts? Sure. Yeah, as practical and actionable as the book is, I, I first of all, I'm like an ideas person. So I like to think from these kind of first principles for making these kinds of decisions, these mental models that you can apply throughout your career when you have other opportunities come up or when you want to pursue opportunities. So opportunity costs, signaling theory, and incentives are the three main mental models that you'll find throughout the book. Opportunity cost is essentially, if you apply it as a mental model in career decisions, it's asking yourself, what is the next best way I could be spending my time on any kind of choice you have coming your way? But you can also apply it with other people, whether these are potential employers, potential investors, business partners, mentors, teachers, what's the next best way that they could be spending their time? And you can make a list of the priorities that people have, the most valuable ways that they can spend their time. And the reality is the world is made up of a lot of very busy people. And these people, the opportunity cost for them of doing anything is very high because they're very skilled. They're very responsible. They're people who are very difficult to replace, whether that's in their business or in uh, academia or in some kind of like investor decision uh, kind of role. These are people that you can't just switch in another person to replace them. If you can find tasks that they have to do that are very low priority for them, for you, especially if you're at the beginning of your career, or you're making a transition in your career, these can be incredibly valuable learning experiences and incredibly valuable tasks just for you to do, period. So opportunity cost is one of the main ways of thinking about career decisions, opportunities in front of you, the people that you interact with and the opportunities that are on their plates. Signaling theory comes back to uh, my experience working in a lot of the higher ed and higher ed adjacent space, which if I remember this experience that I had when I used to give talks on college campuses and you could go to an audience. This is something I learned from one of my mentors years ago. You could go to an audience of a hundred students and no matter where you are, you could do it at a small state school in Gulf, the Gulf coast of Florida. You could do it at the university of Michigan. You could do it at Carnegie Mellon University, you could do it pretty much anywhere. And you could ask the students, how many of you, imagine a world where you had the option where you could spend the money you're spending, spend the time you're spending here, learn the things you're learning, meet the people you're meeting, but you're not going to get a degree at the end of the day. How many of you would still be here? And in a room of 100 students, maybe one to five people raise their hands. And that, that's fine. Those one to five people should go be professors or should be academics of some kind because academia primarily, if you look at it through 
a training lens or human capital lens is great for creating more professors. That's, it's, it's essentially an apprenticeship system for academics. Most people there are there to get a credential because the credential helps them get a job. The credential helps them get a job because it's a signal to employers that they can do certain things. Now, the strength of that signal, there are a couple things that go into that. The brand recognition of the university might go into it. What they majored in might go into it. Their GPA can augment it a little bit. But it's at the end of the day, it's a signal to employers like a uh, red light or green light or yellow light at a traffic stop telling the employers whether or not you should not hire this person go ahead, hire this person or take it slow. But the reality is there are lots of different signals out there, not just uh, university credentials. Uh, There are trade organization credentials. There are other ways that people can build their own signals. Their social proof is a signal. There's all these different signals that you can create, whether it's to get a job or to get to have somebody invest in your company or to land a business partner. So whatever you learn through picking up opportunities from people who are busier than you, more skilled than you, have more valuable opportunities that they can delegate to you, you then should signal those things so that they attract the right people and so that the right people who would find those things valuable, having seen that you did those things, will say, oh, wow, this person's actually quite skilled. And then you can appeal to their incentives. Once you've got their attention or once you're able to begin speaking to them, you then want to appeal to what are all the things that they need to get done? What are all the outcomes that they are responsible for? What at the end of the day do they need to be held accountable for? So to give you an example, Incentives, everyone faces incentives, right? Yeah, these incentives are can be set up by your job. Salespeople are the classic example of this. How you design a sales, a, a sales system inside of a company is incredibly important. I have a few coaching clients who are heads of sales for different software organizations. And these are growing software organizations and they actually have to design the uh, the compensation system for their sales development reps and their account executives, people like that. But it's not just salespeople. It's anybody in any kind of role. So what are you reviewed on? What are you paid for? What can you be fired for? Certain people work in jobs where they they really don't see a lot of upside, but they can see a lot of downside. The people who are wealth managers for very wealthy families are a really good example of this. Their job is essentially don't lose money. And if you, they're paid very well, but if they make a lot of money, they're not paid a lot more typically, but if they lose money, they can lose their jobs. So once you understand what incentives people face, it becomes so much easier to craft a message to them, whether that's your initial outreach message, like you might do in cold emailing or cold messaging, cold calling, all these different ways of reaching out to people you don't know, or if it's uh, kind of inbound messaging through the different signals and signaling tools that you can build. I'm a huge fan, for example, of personal websites. I I think a personal website is something that anybody who is serious about their career should have. And it's just one piece of a large puzzle of building career tools, but your personal website can really do for you what people think LinkedIn should do for them. It can signal all of the creative capacities you have, all of the skills you have, all of the social proof that you've been able to develop through the people you've met. 
and it provides you a great way to capture the contact information of people who are interested in the things that you've done. So the three fundamental mental models, to, to recap, are opportunity cost, signaling theory, and incentives. And if you understand those, both for yourself and for other people, uh, navigating your career gets a lot easier. Yeah, it's... In some ways, once you understand opportunity cost, it entirely solves that problem of, oh, how, what can I possibly offer like this person who's way ahead of me who like wants to do exactly what I do? But as soon as you realize that they are so busy that, yeah, like you said, they're just they have things on their plate that could be valuable to you that to do uh, and also be valuable for them if, having got it done. And you can it's like an arbitrage of that opportunity cost to get ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in those jobs too, those kinds of roles where you can identify somebody who's doing what you want to do and arbitrage the opportunity cost between you and them, those are, for, if we take a step back for a moment and look at this, look at like careers, capital C from a 30,000 foot uh, overview, those are very difficult roles to automate. If you want to just think in terms of job security, this kind of you know, informal apprenticeship system is a is one of the best ways for you to always be secure in your job and have a career and have control over your career. Yeah, and to make that make it a little bit more concrete for the people listening, it's one of the things that one of my friends did. So he's a research scientist at Google Brain. Doesn't have a doesn't have a, any advanced degree other than a bachelor's. And of course, everyone thinks, oh, you need a PhD for to do this kind of work. But what he did was he did exactly this. He found the opportunity cost opportunity cost arbitrage, where he was able to go to these people who are at the top of their field and say, I know that you have research ideas that you want to pursue, but you just can't. Just give me those research opportunities, and I'll, I'll just come back to you and tell you what I found. And by doing that, he was able to slowly gain their trust as someone who was extremely competent, despite not having those traditional credentials. Yep. Great example. So you have to start to go into the actual six-step framework, it unfortunately, it does seem like uh, you don't have a clean acronym for all of these. It's like uh, yeah. fle flesk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, flesk. <laughs> Two Cs. <laughs> and that first one, of course, is focus. So mm -hmm. what should we be focused on? How do we even know what we should be focused on? Yeah, so the, the focus section of the book is essentially a, a goal-setting chapter. And again, I set out to, to build this because most of the goal setting stuff I found out there is just so bad. It's so fluffy. It's not helpful at all. I assume that most people who are reading my book are pretty competent people, but they're people who have so many opportunities in front of them. They really don't know what to focus on. This is something you really tend to find with recent graduates or people who are, were very successful in one field and decided to switch to another field. They are they're the types where it's like they could be anything when they grow up. That's what they were always told. And that can be debilitating for some people. And what I think is a better way of thinking about these things is first by looking at all the options that are in front of you and then narrow your vision in the sense of when you focus on one thing, you ignore everything else. So what you want to do first is you want to rule out the roles, opportunities, tasks, jobs, careers, goals that aren't appealing to you. And then work from there. 
So this is inspired by a concept that you'll find in philosophy and theology uh, of, of via negativa, through the negative. You could ask, what is God, right? That's a really hard question to answer. Trust me, there, there are a lot of people much smarter than me who have tried to answer that question. But there are easier ways to get close to an answer to that question. So you could say what God is not. We know what God is not, right? So you can say, instead of asking yourself, what do I want to do? Well, start by asking yourself, what do you not want to do? And I like to think in terms of one to three years when we're thinking about these kinds of things. If you're a little bit more advanced in your career, you might want to choose a little bit longer. Uh, but especially if you're earlier in your career, one to three years seems to be a, a good frame for most people because three years away is close enough that we can build a road to get there, which is part of the exercise, but it's far enough away where we can actually be ambitious about things, right? So the focus exercise fundamentally is what I call ambition mapping. It's in the sense of if you imagine drawing a map from your final destination uh, to where you are, that's actually what you do. You don't draw a map from where you are to your final destination, if you did that, if I want to go to California and I'm in, in Pennsylvania, I'd start by saying, I, I got to go west, right? So I could end up in Oregon. I could end up in Washington. I could end up somewhere in Canada. First one I think when I think about is where do I actually want to end up in California? And how do I end up from California back to Pennsylvania? And then I follow that route. We do the same thing with your career. So you start by thinking about the things that you don't want to do. And in the book, I have a whole system for which people can use to pump their intuitions. Because again, if you ask yourself, what do you not want to do? Again, it's amorphous. But we can actually use something called sentence completion exercises. These were popularized by a psychotherapist in the 70s and 80s, 90s named Nathaniel Brandon. And Nathaniel Brandon found that if you use sentence completion exercises and you just let people finish the sentence when they start a sentence... It can provide you some really interesting and useful information for at least pumping your intuitions. And once you have a, a sense of all the things you don't want out of your career, you can then rank order them and compare them against each other. I've got a whole workbook online that comes with the book that people can use if they want to use it. You can then start asking yourself, what do I do want, right? You've set aside all of the chaff, and now you can start looking at the wheat, right? And then you can start building up a, a smart goal for what you want to achieve in the next three years. And then you can ask yourself, okay, how do I actually get there? Let's imagine I've achieved this goal and work backwards from achieving that goal. What are all the things I need to do? And you'll find, of course, as you're doing this, that uh, you start with much more abstract, difficult to define goals. Like I need to Build, I need to build a portfolio project that gets me hired at a top tier data heavy company. Okay, first you need to figure out what a portfolio project to get hired at a top tier data heavy company would look like, right? And then once you develop, once you do that, you need to actually break down the steps of building that. And that's okay. So you want the steps that are closest to you today to be the most actionable. And then as you get further and further down this list of steps that you need to go through, you're going to revise the steps to make them more actionable and more concrete. Of course, the things that are closest to you are going to be the most actionable. I advise people typically get them as actionable as start a Word document or start a new base in Airtable and load in all of the companies you want to work for or open up Crunchbase and find all of the companies that have raised a series C or later round that are in the 
the data hub and then go from there. So th- th- that's a lot to throw at your listeners, <laughs> but th- it's, it's all laid out in the book. And I, I really try to provide people with the opportunity to really go really systematically through this. Yeah, I'd like to double click on the sentence completion part of it, because mm-hmm. something that I've realized in the past, say, year is that self-awareness is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you, and you, you start off the chapter by talking about mimetic desire, which is about how we want things that other people want. And after thinking about it, about that concept more, I've realized for myself that this, like, at first you think, oh, that's just other people. It doesn't affect me. But as a real life example of this, even though I found myself working at, after working at a super large tech company at Amazon, it just wasn't for me. Like it's super large company, not, doesn't fit my personality. But yet later on, I still found myself like writing down the goal of I, sh- I want to work at Google, like another big company, even though I already had the experience that no, I didn't, this isn't actually for me, but the social pressure and like the mimetic desire is just so strong that it's so hard to actually get at the heart of things that you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, mimetic desire, if, if, if you want to jump into the, that, if we want to discuss that, I'm, I'm happy to jump into that. That's a whole... Uh, yeah, maybe for a little bit. Okay. So yeah, I, I reference this concept in the book called mimetic desire. And it's a concept from anthropology, uh, but has also been applied in areas like psychology and pretty much any area where you're talking about people. It's most commonly associated with an anthropologist named René Girard, who really, what he started by studying literature, and he broke down a lot, of, a lot of the common themes in literature, and he found that the common themes in literature actually apply to a lot of the rest of the world around us. That's why great literature is great, right? It is descriptive of a lot of different things in the human life. And the defining char- characteristic of human beings is that we are imitative creatures, Uh, We want what other people want because other people want them, and they want them because they're things that other people want. And this can be a really difficult process to break out of, like you said. And it's not always necessarily bad. Mimetic desire is neither good nor bad. It gets bad when people are imitating other people really close to them, when people are fighting over a lot of scarce resources, Or if we think of the concept of the practicality of the book, when it leads you to goals that you don't actually want. So taking that step back and actually getting that mirror where you can say, do I actually want this is really hard. I know people who've spent their whole careers trying to make introspection easy. That's that's fundamentally what sentence completion exercises are, they're introspection. And they will tell you it's very hard. I have some friends, for example, who professionally work on introspection. They'll use sentence completion exercises, and uh, they will tell you if you work on an introspection workshop with people, their their palms start to sweat, they get clammy, like they physiologically get uncomfortable while they are trying to like look at themselves. So this is a defining characteristic of people, and it can be very difficult. My advice for people, and this is my advice in general, whether we're thinking about psychology here or think about the website later in the book set a set of goal in your mind of good enough i want a good enough goal to to get to the next level doesn't need to be perfect but you you do want to be able to set up these little flag posts like in your example charlie where 
it's like, oh, well, yeah, I actually really didn't like working in a very large company. So let's try to actually move that onto the Via Negativa, rule that out, and then think about, okay, now that we've ruled out the idea of working at like a FANG company or, or even a Fortune 500 company, what are the other options available to me? And then you can work from there. Yeah, it, that Via Negativa part is so important. It's because you can you have that list of like things that you don't want and then you put your goals in the middle. You have the uh, things that you do want on the other side of that. Anytime an opportunity come, comes your way, you can look at this and say, okay, if this opportunity is fully played out, what does that look like? And is this something that I actually want to do? Or is this something that actually fits inside of this framework that, I already, that I've done the work to figure out uh, what I actually want? Yep. And this plays in nicely with the next section of your book of the book which is finding mentors advisors and teachers because i think it's quite often that people they can obviously we talked just talked about the introspection part is hard but after you've done that then you've talked about how you have to work backwards from that and figure out how to get there but of course many people if you're especially if you're early on in your career you don't know how to get there you don't know what that path looks like you don't even know the range of paths and I think that you have a really good way of describing that this is exactly what an advisor is for. So you, can you go into the differences between those three types of models, as you put it? Yep. No, I mean, it's funny. I ended up writing a career book and I hate so much of the career jargon that you find out there. And I have a note in the book saying, look, I don't like buzzwords. I don't like jargon. But the reality is we either have to use them or we have to invent new words. And inventing new words is really hard. So we'll use them, but with a bunch of asterisks around them. So there are three types of models of people. Like you can think of that like a role model, right? Not like a supermodel. There are three types of models out there that you can use as, as role models in different capacities for your career. And I like to think of those as mentors, coaches or consultants, and advisors. And they each play a distinct and different role for people. Often people lump them all under the umbrella of mentor, especially if you start getting into the self-help guru space, like people say, oh, well, you should hire me as your mentor. And it's now, if anybody's going around volunteering to be a mentor for you, nine times out of 10, they're going to be a bad mentor. There sometimes are people who are better at that kind of role, but if they're volunteering it, then they're really more acting in the role of an advisor. And we'll start with the advisor and then work up to mentor. Because mentor is the, the big one a lot of people think of, but advisor is the one that can be really helpful and is not super time intensive or expensive for people to pursue. You should have all three of them, especially early on in your career. But advisors are essentially people who, who give advice, right? So you should think of them as advisors. Advisors are people that you can hit up, you can email them, you can LinkedIn message them, tw Twitter DM them, whatever, and ask them for advice about their job, their career, some sort of role they're in, uh, a skill you want to learn, any of these kinds of things. And they should be people who are more advanced than you and have some sort of tacit knowledge that they can then try to concretize and give back to you. Now, the thing you always have to be careful about with advisors is sometimes people didn't actually listen to their own advice and they rewrite their own narrative. So the advice they give you may not necessarily be the most accurate path to pursue. So it's good to get a lot of a few different advisors and get their input in a couple different areas. So these are people you might talk to once, you might talk to twice. They're not people who necessarily you can call up like a friend. 
but there are people who be grabbing lunch with them once, maybe meeting them once a quarter, any of these kinds of things might be really helpful for you uh, in providing you with that kind of advice. It's the most amorphous kind of category. A lot of people can fall into it. People who may otherwise be coaches or mentors also can fall into the category of advisor if you're using them as an advisor rather than using them as a coach, consultant, or mentor. So in coaches or in consultants, are this middle category that's a very formal kind of role. You pay them to teach you something. That is it. They're teachers. These are people who they might be able to teach you about. They're, they're essentially tutors, right? It, it's not super complex. My advice, though, to people is you should pay them. The best consultants, coaches, teachers are paid. They are accountable to you, and you as a function of loss aversion are accountable to them. If somebody's going around working as a free teacher and they claim that their advice is super uh, useful for you, then they may not actually be that useful as teachers. Now, of course, on the other side, you want to be careful about all the people out there who are charging $1,000 for uh, something that could be a $30 book on Amazon, but you do want to pay these people to get something concrete out of them. And the knowledge they give you is this kind of concrete. Knowledge can generally fall into two categories. We can think of it as uh, explicit knowledge or concrete knowledge and tacit knowledge. Explicit knowledge or concrete knowledge is knowledge that you can be learned through a course. It can be learned through a book. It can be learned from a mentor or excuse me, it can be learned from a teacher. Tacit knowledge is much better learned from a mentor. But to give you an example of what explicit or concrete knowledge looks like, that might be just how-to guides, right? How-to guides are the the definition of concrete knowledge. So concrete knowledge is really useful for people. A lot of people in your audience know this, like they need to develop some basic skills, wrangling different different languages and different different frameworks to be able to navigate the machine learning world. My, I, I have to apologize. My, my concrete knowledge in machine learning is limited. To, so I would not be a good teacher in the category of machine learning skills. But somebody in that category may, somebody who is a machine learning person or student may need to learn other skills. And we can talk about talent stacking later in the book, but they also need to learn tacit skills. So tacit skills are these skills that are really difficult to teach in a book. They are almost always taught one-on-one with people. So a lot of the stuff around office politics is this way. Fundraising for startups is this way. And even in uh, roles that people think as like very concrete, explicit roles, like being software engineers, those are roles that if you are actually have a good mentor that can teach you a lot of the tacit knowledge, that is often the difference between somebody who is a good engineer and somebody who is an outstanding engineer. I've done a lot of work with engineers. So it's software engineering generally I can speak intelligently about. So tacit knowledge is this knowledge that's really difficult to Uh, teach in a class or teach online or teach through a book. It's something that you have to watch somebody do something. You have to watch how somebody addresses a problem, fixes a problem. You bring a problem to them. You tell them, I've spent hours and hours trying to fix this. I I don't know how to fix it. And then they just fix it like that. That's a good example of tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is learned by working with mentors. Mentors, though, are people who are typically too busy to go around to like mentorship events or networking events and volunteering to be mentors. A good mentor is somebody that you work for or work with who is much more skilled than you 
and can teach you the skills that they have through absorption and osmosis and being near them and watching how they make decisions. It's pattern recognition. It's essentially pattern recognition. A good mentor has many, many data points that they've trained their neural net on. My own world, when I wear my investing hat, is very much like this. Investing is fundamentally, in venture capital, an apprenticeship-based model. And you only get good at it from watching people who've done it a lot. So that's why you should always be really skeptical of somebody who is able to go raise a ton of money and has very little investing experience and has the ability to write a check. Because that person has not trained their model on enough data points yet. So mentors are the people that you reach out to using that kind of opportunity cost system that we just, we discussed earlier in the episode. These are the people you reach out to and you say, hey, you know, I love what you're doing with this company. I, I noticed that you guys are working on XYZ. I'm just beginning my career. I put together a little project that I think might be really useful for you. I'd love the opportunity to speak with you or one of your hiring managers to work with you. If not, totally fine, but please let me know. That's a mentor. And you trade off mentors in your life, right? As you become more skilled or as you change roles or your goals change, you get different mentors. But these are the people that fundamentally are the difference for people between somebody who has learned only from a book and somebody who's actually very skilled in the world. I've done a ton of talent work with people. I can tell you, I skilled people can tell a difference like that between somebody who only learned from a book or only learned from like Codecademy or only learned from YouTube videos and somebody who's actually spent some time in the real world. You know, that's not to disparage books. That's not to disparage Codecademy, YouTube videos, all these things. But th that's often the difference between somebody who's good and somebody who's great. Yeah. Just thinking about it from the like economics perspective, if you are able to teach, it means that you can, you're able to teach it to a ton of people really easily. And naturally the value of that is going to go down versus tacit knowledge being that it is something that has to be done through experience, through osmosis, as you say, by someone who is extremely talented at it. Of course, there are less opportunities to do that. And thus it is more valued. Yep. And yeah, a, good, a good example here is I have some friends who are like self-taught software uh, developers because they own businesses that uh, are, are SaaS businesses. And being self-taught helped them build up the business to where it needs to be. But they all know that they're not going to be like the world-class software developers because they know that when they get to that level, they can hire someone who is going to be a world-class software developer. And they haven't spent that time being working under somebody who is a world-class or a very good software developer to learn those skills. Yeah, and especially in, I'll say in machine learning, the ratio of tacit knowledge to, to con what did you say, concrete knowledge? or Concrete or explicit knowledge. Yeah, explicit knowledge is extremely high at, at this mm -hmm. point just because it's such a new field. It's moving so fast. And you often hear people, they'll read a paper and they call it, research taste where they're able to know, okay, does this paper have potential? And that's just intuition. And that is uh, something that I'll say is tacit knowledge because they've, like you said, pattern recognized over reading hundreds, thousands of these papers and implementing some of them, what's going to work and what isn't. Yep. Yeah. Intuition fundamentally is a very well-developed sense of tacit knowledge. So it seems like it would be especially important in, in this field to be able to 
get those mentors. And we talked a little bit before, like you said, about the opportunity cost framework, but to make that a little bit more actionable, how would you recommend someone go and find someone to mentor under? Yeah, that's a great question. It fundamentally depends on the listener's goals. Machine learning obviously can be a very academic field or it can be a very, I don't want to call it real world field, but very like business oriented field. Yes, engineering versus uh, research. Engineering versus research. Great way of thinking about the dichotomy there. You know, first fundamentally figure out which of the two you want to spend most of your time in. If you don't know that yet, I would encourage you to run through ambition mapping and talk to some people who work in both fields or both parts of the field. And then what I would do is you want to search for people who are ideally in a role where they can hire a subordinate, but that they're not so far away from you that it's like you're reaching out to the CEO of a thousand person company. The reality is you're probably not going to get the person, the CEO of a thousand person company to let you like work directly with, with him or her. They've got a whole system set up around them that allows them to hire people and that stops them from actually being able to do things like that. Now, there's obviously some exceptions may apply, but generally speaking, I think that a like series A, series B, series, maybe even series C startup is a good place for a lot of people to wet their chops uh, because it's a good place where uh, the company is growing quickly, that there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done, but it's not so calcified yet that there's an entire HR department, that there's so many people who remove between you walking through the door and being able to work with someone who's actually a a decision maker. Now, that doesn't mean that at a thousand person company, you can't work under someone, but it means you're going to be working under a vice president rather than be working under the CEO or a senior vice president. So you want to think about different role titles are generally a good way to look research for people and the size of the company. So I'm a fan, like I said, of growth stage companies. Obviously, startups come up with a lot of risk with them. So it obviously depends on your risk uh, tolerance. When you're earlier in your career, you should have a higher risk tolerance. You uh, don't have kids yet. You often, even if you have student debt, you often don't have a lot of debt like mortgage or things to deal with. And if you're, if you can get referred to the startup through people who have a really good intuition on what a successful startup will look like, it can be a rocket ship for your career. And if it's not the rocket ship, then great. If you spend a year or two at a startup that doesn't take off, that's fine. It's not a uh, career killer. If you spend your entire career at startups that don't take off, that's a different scenario. So I'd encourage you get a sense of the size of company you want to work for. Internships are a great way to get a sense of this, right? If you have the opportunity to do an internship at a very large company, maybe you'll learn you really don't want to work at a very large company. So then you can go uh, look at startups. You can find these kinds of startups uh, on places like Crunchbase, PitchBook, AngelList. There's a bunch of different sources out there. I'd encourage people to make a list of all these companies who you think what we would call the economic buyer for a role would look like. The economic buyer is somebody who has the ability to just sign off on hiring someone. If the company doesn't have like a vice president of data analytics or something like that, then it's probably going to be the CTO or the CEO if the company's smaller. When the company gets bigger, they have a CEO, CTO, then a vice president of engineering underneath the, the, C, the CTO, and it might be the vice president of engineering. Once you start seeing role titles like senior vice president versus vice president, it's still usually the vice president you want to talk to. That's essentially the department, department manager. 
However, if you have a really interesting in, so it might be you listen to somebody on a podcast or you have a mutual contact and you think you can successfully email and get in touch with somebody who's higher up that chain, you should actually contact the person higher up the chain first because what they will do is they will refer you down to the hiring manager you need to talk to. And you then should use the opportunity when you're speaking with the hiring manager, even if they're not hiring, to find out what what things they need done. If you have the ability, and I understand not everyone has the ability, but if you have the ability to work for free, volunteer to work a few hours for free, even remotely, right? That's just the your ability there to build up some of your portfolio and to build uh, social proof with the company. If you don't have that ability, you can volunteer for trial periods. This is often a great way to get your foot in the door with a, a company that's a little skeptical of hiring someone who's coming through a, a non-traditional means. Or you can, you know, put the company on an update list where you or where you will reach out to them occasionally as you are developing new things in your portfolio and you are skilling up a little bit more and more. As you can see, there's a lot of ways that you can go about this. My advice generally is start with someone who's pretty accessible and somebody who's skilled enough that you will actually learn from them. So you want somebody who is doing a role that you could see yourself doing someday. Before you get there, though, it's not just like email this person and say, can I work for you? You need to give them some kind of reason to say yes. You'll get, as you advance in your career yourself, you're going to get people reaching out to you, essentially asking you to mentor them. And that's a terrible way of asking somebody to be your mentor. (laughs) Instead, you want to give somebody a real concrete thing that you can do or that you can accomplish. So my advice generally is, if you can talk to people at the company, if it's a larger company, if you can talk to people at the company and you can get a sense of what the company's quarterly or annual goals are, do that. Give people coffee whenever people are able to do that again. Let people tell you about their jobs. People love talking about themselves. They love talking about their jobs. Learn what the problems are at the company and make note of those things and see what some of those problems are that you can solve. So the classic example I like to give because it's just a really, it's really low-hanging fruit in the marketing world would be uh, a lot of companies don't have what you would call a lead magnet. It's essentially a reason to sign up for their email list. So if you're looking to get a marketing job, it could be just putting together their top blog posts, putting it in a really nice PDF, putting a really nice cover on it on Canva and sending that to the CEO or the vice president of marketing and using that as your in, right? In different fields of software engineering, Obviously, there are going to be different things. If the company uses any sort of open source code, I'd encourage you to start building up your portfolio, making contributions to any of the open source libraries that they're working on. Give them a clear track record that you actually know what you claim to know. And go from there. We can get really tangible about the the mechanics of what the email should look like, how you should talk to them. A lot of this is covered in the book, though. So yeah, I'll, yeah encourage people to pick that up. Wow, that's such a good answer. And to make it more actionable for the for listeners who are trying to get, say, a job at an NML startup, they want to reach out to maybe one of the principal engineers, the founding engineers, or like you said, at the VP level, just off the top of my head, some ideas that you could offer them to do are after you've talked to them, you get a sense of what they're doing. You could 
say, take ideas from the latest research papers that are coming out. There's like hundreds a day and you could send alert for the ones that might be applicable to them. And you could just summarize them really quickly each time you get one and send it to them, say, hey, this is a new paper. This is how you could use it. And oh, by the way, I've implemented it open source so you can use it here. Just throwing ideas off the top of my head. Those are great examples. And this is a great example of the tacit knowledge in the industry being really relevant here. So you'll want to you know, talk to people like Charlie, talk to people who are a few steps ahead of you. They don't have to be grizzled veterans of the industry to tell you what are going to be the things that are going to be relevant for hiring managers at, at different kinds of companies. Now, different stages of companies have different pain points. So that's a big part of the ambition mapping of the focus section is if you can get a sense of like the size of company you want to work for or the stage of company, that's going to be probably the biggest determining factor of all of these things from you know here on out. Yeah, and it it seems like obvious when you whenever I hear people talk about this, but and yet I've found myself not doing these things, like not having to not thinking that I can just go reach out to these people. I don't know, it seems like there's some sort of mental block, I would say, in reaching out to, to these kind of people and, and offering to work for free? Do you find that's some like a, a common thing? Oh, absolutely. People, they're scared of rejection, naturally. That's, I think that's the biggest thing. People are just terrified of rejection. Worst case scenario, the person says, thanks for reaching out. Worst case scenario, they ignore your email, even if you follow up a couple of times. Worst case scenario after that, it's like they say, thanks for sending this in. We're not hiring right now, or we're not interested whatever. I always encourage people to make a list of five to 15 companies. But this kind of approach, you're going to actually get replies. Because you have to understand, think again, think back to incentives, right? For a growing company, the biggest reason it fails, besides revenue, is it can't hire good people fast enough. So if you are someone who is actually good at what you do, or can be good at what you do, and early on, it's really just like, your ability to your ability and willingness to put in the work more than anything else, you are solving a huge problem for them by reaching out. Now, certain companies might be in different kinds of roles. Academia, for example, research organizations, they probably are hiring based on an annual budget or based on a grant schema. So it's difficult for them to hire and you got to get really lucky with when you reach out if you want to be paid. But if you don't want to be paid and you're willing to work for free on the side during school or maybe on the side during an internship, that's a huge competitive advantage for people. And again, I understand most people can't do that, or a lot of people can't do that, but I think more people can do it than they think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll echo and even magnify that, that first point even more. It's so hard in machine learning to hire people. If you talk to any manager, any CEO, they'll say it's like keeping, especially with Google and Facebook, they like snatch up everyone. And so it's really hard to be able to compete with them to even find that ML talent in the first place and then even harder to retain them. So I know personally, like I've referred a few people to my manager at work and every time he's, oh my God, thank you. Because I know that this person is able to do the job and he's just so, so thrilled anytime there's any qualified lead who's able to do the work of putting taking machine learning out of the lab and actually making products with it. It seems like all of the people coming out of schools, like they come out of the research labs, 
That's like all they know. They only know how to work on the hardest problem instead of the most useful problem. I could talk about the misaligned incentives of this all day, but I think it'd be good to move on to possibly we'll skip over the execution section because it's very tactical, doesn't really have any machine learning specific things and go right into signaling. And we, you mentioned before, like you should definitely have a personal website. So mm -hmm. maybe we can start there. Why is that so important? Yeah, it's your real estate on the internet. First of all, I think we're seeing more and more often that the social media companies are happy to extend their rights as the owners of that internet real estate however they want. So I know people who are totally unoffensive, totally non-controversial, who built the entire businesses off of a social media channel, and then it's just gone. And there's nothing you can do. It's like a Kafkaesque nightmare trying to appeal something, say it like YouTube. Social media is where a lot of people tend to spend their time for building up the signals that they can use to appeal for jobs. But really, you want to make your personal website the home of these things. Then the social media channels point to your personal website. You can imagine them as like feeders into a shoot, right? And on your personal website, you have so, so much ability to show off different kinds of work, show off other things that are difficult to signal on just like a resume or on just an application. These are traits like conscientiousness, like how much can you actually pay attention to detail? A well-crafted personal website, even if you hire a friend to build it for you, if you actually update it and you write half decently on it, signals a lot about a person's conscientiousness. The things they write about can signal a lot about their openness and their creativity and things like that. It's a place for you to also show off a portfolio so that when you reach out to a company, you can direct them to your personal website. You can say, here's seven different uh, portfolio projects I did during school. Here's two that I did for free with uh, a company that I reached out to. They, ended up, they weren't able to hire because they you know, weren't able to fundraise or whatever, or I didn't want to work there. You don't even have to say why. You can say, these are two projects I did at a startup that I worked with. And here's a private page that I put together just for your company with all the things I, I can do for your company. And there are more and more tools out there that allow you to do things like that very last one that you can use. And I'd encourage people to check them out. Crash is one, for example, that one of my former colleagues ended up launching. And it's a way for you just to show to a company not just here's what I've done, but here's what I will do for you, right? A resume, I like to tell people resume is like a business card. Having one isn't going to get you any opportunities, but not having one might lose you opportunities. So you should have a resume, but don't just send a resume when you reach out to a company. Give them something tangible, something for them to say, great, I can put this person on doing X, Y, Z, Often, if you just reach out saying, I'd like to work for you, even if they have a job posting, but especially if they don't have a job posting, you're creating more work for the manager than you actually realize. Because now they have to think about, ah, what are, what are all the things I can have this person do? I, I don't know. I'll get to it later. And often they don't even reply to the email. If you give them something really tangible that you actually can do for them, essentially inventing your own role, you can list this on your personal website or you can put it in the email. It's a great tool for you. The other reason your personal website should be your little homestead on the internet is as you do more and more of these things, right? These more and more of these signaling things, whether it's projects you've done at a company, contributions you've done to open source libraries, or things like a podcast is a great example of something that I, I think a lot of people, if they're 
if, if they have high verbal intelligence, they should do something like that. And they like talking to people because it provides an opportunity to meet new people. Hey, come on my podcast. But it also provides you an opportunity to have people learn about you and what you're doing. So if you have a personal website, you can have an email capture on the website. Now you have that person's email address. And you might only update your email list one, four, 12 times a year. I only update my email list when I have something really big and new I want to show them. But it's people who've explicitly said, yes, I am interested in what you're working on. I'm interested in what Charlie's working on. I'm interested in what is going on this little homestead of the internet. And those people, you have no idea who might be on that list. I think that's one of the ways I actually ended up landing a book agent that helped me turn this book into a reality. So it's a great way both for when you're sending things out uh, to have a place where you can like really craft your message however you want and for when people are coming to you for you to actually capture their info so you don't have to rely on them actually reaching out to you. So one of the things I do actually this is great too, because a lot of people think, oh, what are the last questions? What are some of the things I can do, I can create that signal my competencies? Like I said, podcast is a great one. If you can write, writing is still a really great thing to do. YouTube obviously is something a lot of people like to do as well. But even if you have this general bucket of the type of media you want to create, you then still have the question of like, well, what do I actually write about or create about or record about, whatever. One thing I encourage a lot of people to do is I have my email list set up in a way where my subscribers will get an email about a day after they subscribe at saying, hey, I just saw you signed up. What's a question that you have about your career right now? And the email is sent automatically, but I do read it. Maybe one in 10 people actually replies to that. But one, the people who do, they tend to be pretty appreciative of the email. And two... It provides a great opportunity for me to learn what does my audience actually want to read? What are the problems my audience actually has? And then I can craft new content in relation to that. So the cold emailing stuff, which we talk, I talk about a little bit in the book, but I also have a whole course on it that like really gets into the, the weeds on how to do that. That came about through doing something like that. I created a bunch of different content, threw it out into the internet, saw what stuck, saw what didn't. I doubled down on what stuck. People were really receptive to the cold emailing stuff. It's a big problem. A lot of people have. It makes them really nervous and anxious. I realized, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to apply my skills that I have in a way that people will actually find really valuable. It's, I love the part about how you say it's, it's, it is your real estate on the internet and it's really not that expensive. It's not that hard to do. Uh, You can set it up easily in a weekend and that'll just pay dividends over and over again. A previous guest, Sean Wang, or known online as Swix, he talks about it just increases your luck surface area. So people will just be able to, it's essentially like it's raining and you having a website just increases the the percentage chance that one of those will fall on you and you'll get that quote, lucky opportunity. Yep. So it's the reason why, you know, like Charlie, you and I have had a, a few interactions now, so I would have happily come on the podcast regardless. But it's one of the reasons why I, I will almost always come on podcasts. I'm pretty busy. I've got a lot of things I have to do. But the serendipity that especially having the website allows to have happen with something like appearing as a guest on someone's podcast, you never know who's going to come your way. There could be a listener right now who just really needed to hear about my book and they pick it up, they read it, and then they email me. And that could be a really great 
conversation that come right out of it. Out of it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it facilitates serendipity. That's essentially what the website does. Yeah, and it makes a flywheel effect in terms of you're learning things from your mentors by working with them. You're creating content about what you did on that. And then in the next section of the book, it's you're able to connect with those people who were able to see your website and they're like, oh, this guy. Yeah, fundamentally, oh, the, the, I the concept in the book. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a flywheel effect. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because that's what it is. It's, yeah, you learn things from people. You build evidence that you learn those things. You broadcast that evidence. You use that to meet more valuable people who you can learn from and build things to as evidence that you have learned from them. And then you can keep doing this process again and again in your career. Mm -hmm. So to skip over again, we'll skip over the connecting again. I don't think there's much machine learning specific things in there. Go read the book and going straight to closing. And Mm -hmm. I really want to talk about you. What something you mentioned before, which is the, talent stack and this idea that there are skills some people call them meta skills i don't know if you use that phrase that kind of no matter what you do it accelerates whatever field you happen to be in so can you go over what you think the those most valuable skills would be and how we can get better at them yeah i think fundamentally it's the skills that allow you to bring more opportunities your way so that i think being a good listener is a huge one of these it sounds like such a fluffy skill <laughs> oh you should be a good listener but really no being a good listener is your ability to is like the fundamental building block of being able to make people feel seen and remember you and refer you to things and hire you and give you money and do all of the things that like are actually really important uh, for growing your career. So I, I think that if we're thinking about meta skills in the sense of skills that are building blocks for other skills or skills that are building blocks for other opportunities, it is things like being a good listener, being able to help people feel seen, which means like understanding their incentives and speaking to their incentives and knowing the things that you have to learn before you actually really have to learn them. And fundamentally, all these come back to listening really well. I want to find, I have a uh, diagram in the book about talent stacking though, that I think is, is really useful for people to understand what talent stacking is. Now, this is a concept, I, I, I did not coin this phrase. Um, it was coined by the Dilbert creator, uh, Scott Adams, in his book, How to Fail at Nearly Everything and Still Win Big or something like that. I, something I like that, yeah. The title. Yeah, it's, it's some really long title like that. But it's essentially this concept of there are different skills you can learn that are often not combined with each other. And these skills will differ based on your field and what your competition looks like in the field. Because something we don't talk about too much in the book is the reality is you are competing for opportunities. My advice generally is to take what business gurus or MBAs might call a blue ocean approach and try to avoid your competition as much as possible. So the way you do that is you preempt them by cold emailing people before they actually really need to hire reaching out to people who are a little bit ahead of you and learning the skills before your peers actually really need to learn them. But there are other things you need to learn that are skills that your competition doesn't really have. And like I said, this is different based on the role you want. I can just tell you that the stereotype about 
any kind of software engineer not being particularly personable <laughs> does tend to bear out in a lot of hiring processes. And it can be really helpful for people to develop some of those softer skills, uh, like being a really good listener and being really good at follow-up, things like that, that will really allow you to stand apart from your competition. Now, the nice thing is about the talent stack is the skills that you have to learn that a lot of your competition doesn't have, the bar tends to be pretty low, right? Like when I say become a good listener, you don't need to be uh, like world-class salesperson, good listener. You just need to be good enough that the interviewer or uh, the hiring manager or the CEO on the other end of the call or the other side of the table walks away saying, wow, that was a really good conversation. Then when you write your follow-up email later and you include a nice little note about something you discussed that reinforces that fact in their mind. So the talent stack is, you can imagine the Venn diagram I just showed you. You sit at the intersection of all these different little Venn diagrams and your competition sits in the first circle in the Venn diagram. So you are able to compete with an increasingly smaller set of people. And if your skills in the first circle stay good, then it becomes a no-brainer to hire you. So the thing you want to think about is, okay, I can learn skills that are directly relevant to my job. And you absolutely need to do that. You need to stay in that, that first circle. But what are the skills that a lot of my competition, what, what are they not learning? And what are the people who are really good in my career? What do they have that I don't see really any of my peers have right now, maybe one or two of my peers. And if you understand the Peter principle, the, the concept that people rise to the level of their incompetence, then you can get competent enough at a few different areas that you will continue to rise in your career. So talent stacking fundamentally is learning skills that a lot of your peers in competition don't have and using those to your advantage. You know, a, a good example of this might be the, the Scott Adams example that comes to mind is he was funny and he knew how to draw. Like a lot of people who are funny don't know how to draw. That's, that's enough right there that it provides a lot of really unique opportunities that allows him to not have to compete with people who are drawing really good drawers. A lot of good drawers aren't particularly funny. And a lot of people who are particularly funny, but aren't very good at drawing. So that allowed him a very narrow area where he could like really set himself apart. Yeah, a lot of follow-ups that I'm thinking from there. One immediate one, especially on the topic of Dilbert and cartooning, there was recently a, car a machine learning cartoon that absolutely blew up on Twitter because no one had done it before. Yeah. Because <laughs> engineers just don't draw. I, I don't know. It's just <laughs> not a thing. And especially no one in machine learning had ever done something that was both funny. It was like a critique on the current state of research. And it was actually pretty good art. And this was, I don't think this person really had any name before that. They weren't that well known. But once they released this, it just spread like wildfire on the machine learning Twitter. So that's one example right there. Yeah. Or like XKCD is another good example that a lot of people like understand very science oriented technical matters, don't know how to draw. So even like a stick figure cartoon is funny enough to them. Yeah. And we, to reinforce the more, even more the idea of the, of how talent stacking makes you, gives you more of those opportunities we have a very math-based audience, obviously machine learning. And so if you just think of the, instead of Venn diagram, your choices are either to get two sigma in terms of one skill 
or you can be one sigma in terms of three different skills and it's just one minus like one minus 33 squared 33 percent squared is essentially gets you already to that 99 percent level without having to put in the 10,000 hours to really get to the that extreme tippy top of that one skill yep you don't actually need to be a world world class at really anything in order to become to take on like world-class kind of opportunities. Again, I'll use the example of my of friends of mine who are business owners. They're good enough at software engineering where it allows them to navigate their way around their SaaS business, hire people competently and do a bunch of other things. But then they also have other abilities as well. Like they have a certain business competence that is often a lot of tacit knowledge bundled mm-hmm. up together. Uh, and they might have some other skill that allows them to they're, they're, they're not world-class at any of these, but because they're at the intersection of these three areas or four areas, they can run a very successful business. How do you think about the personal fit aspect of skill building? So like to go back to the example of drawing, I fully recognize that it would be a immensely valuable skill to have. However, I personally don't think that I'm very good at it. Is that something that is just so valuable a skill that I should pursue it? Or should I start looking for other things that I might have more of a natural talent in? Yeah, the natural talent question is a difficult one for me to answer. I I do think that it's generally better to attack low-hanging fruit first, though. I think the better way of thinking about this, if we want to reframe the question, is what are some of the things that you could pursue that are valuable that you don't hate doing? (laughs) Like, I'm not very good at drawing. I'm really quite bad at it but I've never actually tried to learn it. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of these things too, it's like people get so caught in their heads. And the reality is if you have a little bit of disposable income, hire someone to teach you the skill, see if you can enjoy it. I think a lot of skills are like golf. Everyone hates it until they're actually good at it. (laughs) I, I don't like golf, but I'm bad at golf. Yeah, I would encourage you like... Pursue your natural curiosities, but if there's a if there's not a good reason that you would hate trying something, at least try it. This is what disposable income's for. It's for hiring like teachers to teach you things that might be fun and also valuable. That's a really great answer. To zoom out a little bit from since we've gone through four of the six steps, by now the book has been out for a little over a year and what do you think is most overlooked in it that people or they just tend to gloss over and skip that you think is actually really important? There's the sections that I think people skip, and then there's the sections that I think people overlook. I think a lot of people skip ambition mapping because it's hard. It's really hard. It came out of me working with a lot of people as like doing some career coaching with people and trying to get them to get a sense of what real tangible goals are and realizing just how hard introspection is. So I have a whole, I think it's like a five or 10 page uh, workbook that that comes with the book online for ambition mapping is really hard. So I think a lot of people just kind of skip on it and they go to other chapters. The book can be read in a way that you read a single chapter and then read nothing else and you get a lot out of it, but they all also build on each other. So you get the most out of it. The sum is greater, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So there's that. And then I also think the execute chapter is very tactical. A lot of people have their own productivity systems. I'm fundamentally not a productivity guru. I think a lot of people take that or leave that from the book. But I also think a lot of people think putting together a personal website is harder than it is. I wish I had recommended Webflow in the book rather than WordPress. 
I like WordPress. I have my site on it, but if anything breaks on it, you need to be knowledgeable in PHP, which not a lot of, not a lot of people are, and it's not easy to become like fluent in PHP. Webflow, on the other hand, it's okay. CSS is really easy to learn, and you really don't need to know that much CSS or JS to get, know your way around Webflow. Yeah, a lot of people will read the book and they might buy their domain. They might set up a very simple page, but there's so much you can get out of the personal website that I really wish more people would spend their time on on that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, actually, I um, I have an active project of moving my website over to Webflow once my, once my, my hosting subscription runs out after this year. And I like how in that section as well, you have the beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Because when I first read it last year, I had gone through the beginner steps and stuff like that. I was like, okay, cool. And then I f- forgot about the intermediate steps. I have so I added some more action items to do during that transition of to add that the brand builder lead magnet, like you say, and uh, yeah, and start collecting emails uh, from people who look at the resume. Now, if I think a really great talk that you gave was the at the Going Deep Summit, and that really solidified a lot of these ideas, how they fit together. Uh, so. If people are still, even after hearing this great conversation, a little bit hesitant about buying the book, definitely go check out the Going Deep Summit. You interact with the audience. You like broke through some of these people's, I guess, mental blocks. Uh, I really liked how you would say, oh, what do you think is like the biggest thing stopping you? It's, oh, I need more experience. Is anyone here have this problem? Like you two connect. <laughs> so I thought that was really great. Yeah, the reality is if you do have a barrier that you're facing right now in your career, there's probably someone out there who can help you either for free or a relatively small amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. So now I want to move the conversation over to talking about the the future of education and we can tie in the 1517 fund in here as well. And 1517, of course, is the year that Martin Luther nailed the, or started the Protestant Reformation. And yep. There are the new 95 theses that are on the 1517 Fund website, which I think are really great. And I know we're going to get a lot of controversy on this, especially in the machine learning community where everyone seems to be focused on, you need to get a PhD, you need to get a master's at least, or else you're never going to work in this field. And that's, of course, what the gatekeepers would, would say, because it, it helps the gatekeepers. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, every time someone says this to me, I look at the profile and their PhD. <laughs> yeah. But one of the, my favorite thing, I think, of these 95 is higher education has become America's national religion, complete with heaven and hell, salvation and damnation. You're a winner or a sinner, Yale or jail. And <laughs> I think this was great because... This is pretty similar to what I experienced when I first tried to drop out of college. It was what I imagined leaving a cult is like, where <laughs> I had family members calling me, like crying, saying, like, why would you do this to me? You're bringing, the, it's like you're dishonoring the family and things like that. So I just love to get your thoughts on this concept overall of how higher education got here and what the future of it looks like, especially given the overall trends we've seen with COVID. The cult analogy is a really interesting one because I actually have a, a friend who is a machine learning guru. I'll, I, I should connect you guys who both dropped out of school and had experience with the cult. <laughs> so, <laughs> the analogy actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, fundamentally, I, I, look, we can. I've given talks on why I think uh, higher education came to how it is in, in the United States today, where yeah, it's Yale or jail essentially. 
Like you'll find whenever, not to get political, but when people start talking about policy around opportunities, they always talk about just sending more people to college. And so if we send these people to college, they're not going to go to jail. First of all, the dichotomy is bad for like ethical reasons. But also, if you actually look at the economics research, low-income people who go to receive higher education, on average, don't become any much higher income over their oh, lives. Fascinating. Yeah, so you can control it for a couple different things. I think fundamentally, higher education is a really good it, it's a good sorting mechanism. I, I like to tell people if the way you, if you wanted to start a university, the way you would do it is you would find people who are going to be really successful someday based on a couple of leading indicators. You'd give them, you know, a shirt, invite them to a club, and then you'd keep doing this for maybe a decade. And then about 10 years out, you're going to have a couple really successful people that you can then point to get more people to come pay to join your club. That's essentially what universities do. They're really good at selecting for traits that will make people successful. The really good universities are really good at this. Um, now, this there's a lot of debate on what these traits necessarily are, so that's where this gets a little uh, fuzzy. Fundamentally, you can think of it as intelligence, however you really want to define that, conscientiousness and openness. And cr- creativity is part of openness, right? It's essentially somebody's ability to learn things, do work, and be creative. Good universities are really good at selecting for like the top-tier people for these things, if you look at the research, Brian Kaplan's a good example of a, a researcher that's done a lot of work on this. He's got a book called The Case Against Education. He's an economist at George Mason University. As far as human capital skills go, like things people actually learn in university, most things they forget if they don't use them pretty quickly too. If you're in university, my advice for you would be like, make sure you are using what you are learning if you actually think it is going to be valuable out in the real world. But then my second thing would be make sure that it would actually be valuable out in the real world. I don't deny that there are things that people learn in school that are otherwise difficult for them to learn. But I think a lot of people, they learn things that they think are going to be practicable in the real world. And then the real world actually gives them a a different feedback mechanism, whether that's the application of things, as you alluded to earlier with working on actual problems rather than the hardest problems, like valuable problems rather than the hardest problems. Or if it's that often there's a lag between a field and how things are actually practiced in the real world. And the lag can go both ways too, because you have a, a feedback mechanism in the business world that is profit and loss that makes people much more creative with trying to find solutions. And you don't necessarily have that feedback mechanism in the lab. So universities are really good sorting mechanisms. Now, as more and more people are sorted through those mechanisms, though, the value of the signal gets diluted. And that's fundamentally what we've seen over the last decade or so. When you start to control for inflation and you control for tuition costs, the value of the degree has not kept up with the ticket price of the degree, even when you control for things like financial aid. Uh, Now, the elite universities are often very charitable with their financial aid, so a lot of people aren't actually paying $300,000 to go to Harvard or something because Harvard's sitting on a $33 billion endowment that's tax-free. But as more and more people get the credential, too, it gets harder and harder for hiring managers to hire based on that credential, especially if that credential is particularly disconnected from the, the feedback mechanism of the real world. So I'm seeing more and more often 
people getting hired either without credentials entirely or hiring managers requesting more than just the credential in order to get hired. The classic example that people joke about is that for an entry-level job, you need like a bachelor's degree and seven years of experience. And that's a good example of a job that was probably written by an HR manager, not by somebody who actually has to deal with the subordinates that they're hiring. I'll give you an example of one of these moments where the shingles fall away from your eyes. When I was doing business development years ago for Praxis, I had a meeting with the president of one of the fastest growing ad agencies in the country. One of the things I did was I, in order to find companies to partner with, I would find the fastest growing companies in the country and I'd reach out to them. Because if a company is growing quickly, probably needs to hire. So I reached out, I put together a business trip to Phoenix and I reached out to all the fastest growing companies in the Phoenix area. One of those was an ad agency. And I would also look at the job descriptions before I'd go into these meetings to get a sense of, can we actually send somebody to go work at this company? And I remember they had an account executive position, which the education requirements were a bachelor's degree or equivalent work experience. And I asked the the president of the company, what does or equivalent work experience mean to you? Thinking what he would say is like maybe one to three years of work, right? Probably three or four, right? Because it's a four-year degree on average, actually a five-year degree. And he said, a semester of working. So four to six months is the same as a four to five-year degree for you. And he's yeah, I think people, we can teach people in four to six months what they would learn at like Arizona State in four or five years, and probably more. And I've seen this trend accelerate at, at companies where a, a company might start with the a company or field might start with the credential requirement, but then as the demand for the role outpaces the, the people who are formally credentialed in the role, those tend to get dropped. And it's just because that's the incentive mechanism for the company. Machine learning is a tr- field that is you know very new, as you said. So a lot of what people have out there and job postings is going to be fairly credential heavy because they don't know what else to put on job posting. So the credential is just a signal for certain things that they expect you to know. So they know that, okay, if somebody has a, a, a bachelor's degree in computer science with some focus on machine learning in their undergrad, they probably know enough that we can get them out the door and get them trained. But that doesn't mean that there aren't alternative signals you can build for these things. Fundamentally, I, I think what you're going to see is a debundling, and you're seeing this already, a debundling of higher education in the United States. I expect with the budget shortfalls a lot of the states are going to have in the next year, we're recording this in the 10th month of the COVID pandemic, as well as reduced international student enrollment in the United States, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation. I also, I think you're going to see the top universities continue to outperform. The mid-tier universities will fall further and further behind, and the ones at the bottom are going to close and consolidate. I think if a university were, if university administrators were smart, what they would do is they would focus on something that their university is very good at and build their brand around that one thing. And I think good universities have done that with very powerful brands, fundamentally did that. Carnegie Mellon and and MIT are are two classic examples. Princeton's a good example, particularly with things related to like public service, civil service. Penn's a good example with things related to business, right? The the elite universities have already done this, and you're going to see more and more of a, a push for that kind of thing over the coming years. But yeah, it, it is, it's essentially a national religion. Now, it's, we have certainly moved towards a secularization 
of that national religion in the last seven years that I've been at this. And I think that's probably going to accelerate in the coming years. Especially with people having to be at home, they are realizing that maybe getting lectures over Zoom for $30,000 per semester is not the best way that they could possibly spend their money or really spend their time. And to move it towards 1517 specifically on the about page of the, the thesis, it's there's a bubble in higher education, which we just talked about. Mm-hmm. 1517 is the pin and 2020 is the year that the bubble pops. So can you talk about a bit about that statement and how it relates to the 1517 philosophy in general? Yeah, as you noted, 1517 is the year that Martin Luther started the Reformation. The analogy that my colleagues, the the founders of the fund, Michael Gibson, Daniel Strachman, I like to give is that the church under the Borgias was selling indulgences, these pieces of paper that essentially said you're allowed into heaven. The universities are selling pieces of paper that say you're allowed into the workforce. Now, if you understand that there's way too many people going into higher education just because it's what's expected of them, then really the market can support. That means that there are going to be other opportunities that are going to come up to support those extra people. These people, I I, I really want to make clear, though, that my stance is that these people aren't just the people who should be going and working in trades, which I I don't like how much the trades have been disparaged in the United States in particular. I don't want to say that people on the bottom should go work in trades. Like Trades are really hard. I can tell you, Charlie, I have helped probably... Oh, well over 100 companies now hire and find talent in different ways. The hardest I have ever had was a company that was a crane company and a construction company. That was by far the hardest one. So I don't want to disparage the trades and say, oh, people in the lower you know, quartile of the bell curve should go work there, because that's certainly not what I'm saying. But I also think that there are a lot of really there are a lot of people who traditionally would be thought of as like very good fits for university who will be better served by other options that will come available. Those are either options that they will forge for themselves. And I hope things like my book will help people do that or help them forge those paths for themselves even after they graduate. Or those are entrepreneurial uh, options as well. So at 1517, what we do is we're a venture capital fund. So we invest in startups. We specifically focus on startups with somebody on the founding team who doesn't have a degree. Because my colleagues, Michael and Danielle, are the co-founders of the Teal Fellowship, which was Peter Teal's anti-road scholarship. Michael tells the story that he was working at Clarium Capital on his first day, Peter Teal's hedge fund, and he gets pulled into a meeting with Peter and Jim O'Neill, and they get told they tell him, You're gonna run an anti-road scholarship. <laughs> We're gonna pay people to drop out of school. And they did that for four or five years, four, four cohorts, five years running the program. And it turns out a lot of the Teal Fellows have built very venture scalable companies worth hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. So I think there's a lot of people, those are people that traditionally you would look at, would have looked at them and said, yeah, of course they should go get a degree. They're sharp and they're conscientious and they're open. They've got high openness, but no, the reality is there may be better options for them in the marketplace, but that's hard for people, right? Like, you go through 18 years of a very like structured game that you can think of what education is in the United States. Like here's how you get to the next level and having people break away from that. They either need something so valuable as a company that tells them like, I absolutely need to go do this, or they need to come from like usually a, a, a different kind of background that th- those are the two buckets I tend to see people fall into. Like, 
homeschoolers or people who are like a little bit more, they're less heavily schooled would be my way of saying it, or people that they've just got this like massive opportunity. And there are people who fall outside of those two buckets, but they're, they're few and far between. And there are more and more of them as more options become available. As a VC, you get a, you get such a broad perspective of not only of, like you said, not just the education part with 1517's focus on college dropouts, but also technology trends in general. And something that is on your website is that it you guys like to focus on specifically in deep tech. Although I also saw a men's scare can, scare, skincare uh, startup in there somewhere, but to focus specifically on that deep and emerging tech part, what are you seeing that are that is getting you the most excited? Yeah, I, I mean, to, to clarify like what we look for, we, we do, I don't want to say we do a little bit of everything, but it's deep tech, enterprise software, and some hardware with a data play, if hardware has a data play. So we have a LiDAR company, for example, that's going public in December. That's a multi-billion dollar company, right? And a little bit of consumer. We don't do a whole lot of consumer because the joke my colleague Danielle likes to tell, that's not really a joke, is in order to do consumer investing, we have to know what is cool. In order to know what is cool, you have to be cool and we're not cool. <laughs> so like the men's skincare company, we invested in them after initially telling them no, and they came back to us with really good numbers and they're in CVS locations all around the country. So that's one of those ones where it's really impressive traction. Now, as far as technology trends that excite me, generally speaking, I, I am really excited by things that I've been trying to figure out how I want to describe these. It's not clean tech. It's That's not the way I would describe it. But I think that there's two different visions for a clean future. The, the first vision is one that I find rather depressing. It's the vision of a lot of solar panels and a lot of windmills. It's of carbon reduction Fundamentally, I don't want to go quite as far as saying this, it feels anti-human, but at times it can strike me that way. And I think that's the wrong way of thinking about a, a clean future. I, that's thinking about reducing the numerator instead of increasing the denominator of our capacity. So there is a way that we can imagine a clean future that includes things like clean nuclear energy, dramatically reducing the cost of space travel which has a lot of implications for energy on top of it. So like, for example, we could mine, we could build nuclear reactors on the moon, and then we could channel that energy back to the United States, to the earth in general, probably would be an American moon colony first, but we could channel that energy back to the earth. I've even gone as far as saying, if we can't have actually clean nuclear, we could launch nuclear waste into the sun if we needed to, if you got the, if you got the cost of space launches down low enough. So there is this way of imagining a very clean future that is antithetical to the, the clean tech green future that people often talk about. And, I, and again, I think there are reasons for that. I think that the green lobby actually has a lot of power in the United States, uh, the solar power companies and the wind uh, companies in particular, for example, no, nothing compared to what the oil companies have, of course. I, I live in Pennsylvania and you're not seeing it right now because it's right now, it's right before the election, all these billboards are election billboards, but uh, there's a few nuclear power plants in Pennsylvania and there's also a lot of oil and gas. And you'll sometimes see these billboards with a nuclear uh, power plant on. It's not actually a power plant. It's just a cooling tower and then smoke coming from the cooling tower and like a, a, a skull and crossbones in the smoke. And then it'll say something about how horrible nuclear energy is. And then if you look really closely at these billboards, they're always funded by 
the oil and gas lobby in Pennsylvania. So I'm really excited about nuclear. We have a portfolio company that builds nuclear batteries that are about the size of a tabletop, for example. I'm also excited for things that are adjacent to that space. So that might be, again, a lot of stuff in space. We've recently invested in a space tourism company. We're investing in a few companies that are working on different kinds of propulsion. I'm also interested in transportation. I think that there's something interesting about transportation that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to. And that's that, especially in the tech world, you'll tend to find people who, are, who really like urbanism right? They like, they love dense cities that are very walkable with bikes and like nice waterway that goes through. And don't get me wrong. I think those are really beautiful. And I think that there's a, a, certainly a place for those in cities, but urban sprawl is not necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if people are spending a lot of time in traffic that they can't be doing other things during, right? So you can actually look at the research on the density of cities and it is inversely proportional to how far you could travel in one hour by the dominant means of transportation when that city was founded. So European cities in particular, and uh, in I imagine a lot of East Asian cities as well, very dense in the urban core because these are very old cities. So you're primarily thinking about like horseback, walking, maybe bikes, right? And then you get to the East Coast United States and Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, again, very dense in the urban core because it's primarily like horseback, walking, bikes when they're founded. But then you see it's some older architecture on the edges because whether it's the automobile or the steam engine, something like that. And then you have Phoenix and LA, which are just like these massive sprawled cities that are just going on for miles and miles and miles. And that's because they were primarily, they primarily grew uh, during the age of the automobile. Now, urban sprawl is really only bad if you're spending two hours sitting in it in traffic driving your car. Now, obviously, autonomy is the thing that a lot of people think about here. So how does urban sprawl change when we have autonomy? I think it's going to increase, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because you're going to have a lot more time that you can actually do things if we actually reach level five autonomy. You'll actually be able to like work from your car. You'll be able to We have a portfolio company, for example. I have a podcast interview with them on our 1517 podcast called Cabin, where prior to COVID, they were running essentially a hotel that ran between San Francisco and LA. It was a bus. And they have a shock mechanism too, so that you don't feel potholes and all these other things. And they have this vision, they talk about it on the podcast, where you could imagine going into your phone, booking a cabin, shows up at your door, and it's essentially like a luxury hotel room for you and your family with a kitchenette, a living space, a bedroom, an office. They'll drive you from San Francisco to Chicago and you have this time back to yourself. And I think there's going to be a lot more sprawl because of things like that, but I think that's not a bad thing. I think real estate will fundamentally change. Our sense of time will change. I had a friend years ago make this observation, not in tech at all. And I think this is one of the best observations I've heard somebody mentioned on these things. I was complaining about lines. I, I really don't like standing in lines. I'm, I'm American. I'm not British. I don't like to queue. And he pointed out to me, he's like, why? Because like, I just, I don't enjoy it. He's like, but you have a phone. You can do anything from your phone. It's like the smartphone, and I don't have mine near me, but the, the smartphone fundamentally shifted our perception of time. Similarly, this is why I don't think supersonic travel is super important. I come from a family of pilots. People love supersonic travel. They love to fetishize it. But I think what's more important than supersonic travel 
is reliable Wi-Fi in the sky. <laughs> if you have reliable Wi-Fi in the sky and comfortable planes, and you make the airport experience less miserable, then a lot of the time that's spent traveling, you can actually recoup. Now, supersonic travel will still be nice because there are certain things you can't do. You can't have fam family dinner when you're flying, even if you're flying in business class from London to New York. But it's less important than people think. Things like telecommunication speed, autonomous driving, and thinking about how we're going to make use of real estate, I think, are way more important. Wow, that's so fascinating. That I really like that the the cabin startup idea. It, it just makes so much sense in terms of yeah, as long as your experience is good, it doesn't actually matter how long it takes. I just remember one of my friends was telling me about a Singapore Air having these entire bed cabins where you just get on the plane and then you just go to sleep and then you wake up, you take a shower, and then you're there. And yep. Obviously, that's $50,000, but it, it really is fascinating that you can look at it in that way where you're getting your time back because you're not forced to do it in such a way that is, like you said, so miserable. Uh, there was, And the urban sprawl idea reminds me of something that another podcast I was listening to, uh, Free Thoughts by the Cato Institute, where they were talking about the effect of public transportation on the urban density, about how if public transportation was never a thing, then the, the way that cities would have, would have developed would have been fundamentally different because you wouldn't have had that, that intense density. And the argument that this person was making was that in, in the end, that it would have saved tons of federal money, cities would have been more livable, and you wouldn't have had the massive waste of... So like the, the BART, for example, in SF is never going to be able to recoup its the amount of energy that it well, that was and the amount of pollution that was done just boring through SF, no matter how many cars it saves. So yeah, the future of transportation, especially when you take into account also the some of the charter cities that are being uh, experimented with, the future of those, it's a really fascinating time. Yeah, no. it's a good time to be alive. I, I hear people often often replay the the trope that it's something like born too late to explore the seas, born too early to explore the the stars, but... <laughs> I still think it's an exciting time to be alive. Yeah. Uh, there's. It also reminds me of something that, I don't remember who said it, but about how the internet, while it's not like a transportation thing, like you said, it, you can't really go somewhere else with it, but virtually the internet just expands the sprawl of everything where uh, obviously that's like one of the theses of your book, How to Get Ahead. It's like the internet fundamentally changes how you should approach your career. Yeah, I grew up in a little coal town in rural Pennsylvania, and I should not be where I am now. And it's not because of school. It's because I, I grew up just as high-speed internet was becoming a thing. <laughs> and I was actually able to reach out to a lot of people and build relationships that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Yeah, I say it all the time. Like The way that I got started in data science machine learning was because I was able to take an online course from MIT and an online course from Stanford and apply it to sports betting when I was in high school. Like I live in a town with 2000 people. We have one stoplight. I never would have been able to do anything like this even just 10 years ago. Yeah. So now to start to wrap this up, of course, your book, everyone should go check it out. It is How to Get Ahead, published by McGraw-Hill, and they can find that Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere, local bookstore, probably, anywhere you can find your books. 
And then you have, of course, a personal website, which you've talked mm-hmm. so much uh, about the importance of. So yep. That is just ZachSlayback.com. ZachSlayback.com. And if you do one thing, if you're listening to this, go to Namecheap or GoDaddy or whatever you prefer and buy your first name, lastname.com. It's a good thing to own regardless. And if you have any enemies, now they can't buy it. <laughs> I'm not telling you go buy your enemies, first name, lastname.com. <laughs> And, and something unexploited so, so far is the .ai domain name. I've recently picked up my names on those, even a four-letter one, which is quite nice. So if it is more expensive, but I think it's worth it. Not many people have that so far, and most people will probably be able to get their names on that. So to finish up, I always like to ask the same rapid-fire questions. The first of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work? Uh, you know, obviously 2020 has like really changed <laughs> a lot of ways to gra- uh, grasp at these things. I've recently taken up shooting clays. Yeah. It's like I said, I hate golf because golf it's half the time you may actually miss the ball. Maybe not. Ho- hopefully not half the time. Hopefully you're not that bad, but you lose the ball. You have to go find it. It's really not that fulfilling clay shooting. Even if you're bad at it, you get this really nice feeling of a smell of gunpowder and this explosion and this dopamine rush. So it's, I, I encourage anybody who's curious about it. It's, it's actually a cheaper sport to pick up than a lot of people think. Have you do, been doing a skeet or trap? Just clay's course. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I've yet to, yet to graduate on a skeet or trap. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's super hard. <laughs> I've gone with a, a friend a couple of times and we both get abysmal scores. We just get schooled by these old men with like their tiny guns. And it's, it's always scores. old guys. It's always, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's in, in all seriousness, though, it's, I think it is a good analogy to golf for tennis, right? If you're inclined towards those things, but you don't like them for whatever reason, try shooting clays. Awesome. Next, besides your own book, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? This is a good question, and it really depends on the context that the people are coming out of. Like I said, I, I do really like practical books, but at the same time, I am also like a an ideas person, first of all. I studied philosophy. I really like Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile. If you're on Twitter at all, Taleb's kind of a jerk on Twitter. I've heard he's actually really I've heard he's actually a really nice person in, in, in like in the, the, the flesh zone. But I think Anti-Fragile is a great example of a book that walks people through a lot of different mental models that you can apply to the world. And it's a fun read. I, I, I think it's a, a fun book to pick up. Yeah, I think it was he was they were on some podcast where he was saying that his persona on Twitter is like a deliberate strategy that somehow ties back to being <laughs> anti-fragile. I don't remember how it connected, but <laughs> next when we already touched on this uh but I don't know if you have a different answer, but what technology or sector do you think is extremely underrated or underexploited? Yeah, nuclear still. I still think nuclear's nuclear's huge. Carbon sequestration too. Michael Salon has a a newsletter where one of his episodes that he had made, one of the editions he had come out and talks about carbon sequestration. It's quite good. But yeah, it, how much carbon we, we pump into the atmosphere isn't relevant if we can capture a lot of it and use it. And that way you're able to allow a lot of developing economies to continue to develop. You're not going to kneecap like 80% of Africa <laughs> and like still like, most of India and a substantive chunk of Asia and, and you won't poison the world. <laughs> so carbon sequestration, nuclear energy. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I could go on a big energy rant here, but yeah, a lot of people don't just don't understand that energy is like a fundamental part of GDP. You, you can't just take away the, the energy and remove that and then 
expect to have the same growth. But anyway, and I hope you have a good answer to this one, given your your experience with the Founders Fund or uh, uh, Teal Fellowship. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Again, I don't think things like supersonic flight are actually important. A lot of people in tech just, they, there's a startup out there called Boom, for example, and I, I'm glad somebody's working on it, but like people love to come back to the Concorde. And I think the Concorde was grounded too early, but I just don't think, I'm actually in this camp kind of contra teal that we do need a lot of people working on atoms stuff rather than bits, but there's a lot of things in bits that are still unexploited. And I think that's how bits can fundamentally change how we relate with the world around us. And I think it's a combination of atoms and bits. So even just with our, our own investing with, we do hardware with a data play. Yeah, I, I, I think things like supersonic flight just are not that important. And I would also throw in there that I also think Mars is less important than the moon. I think Mars is still important, but I think we should be going to the moon. I'll have to read up on that front one for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of someone uh, describe that describe it that way. And lastly, what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone entering or in college who isn't sure it's for them? If you're able to take a gap year, I wish I had done this. I know a lot of people have done it. Some people go back. Great. Some people don't go back. Great. I did take a leave of absence after I'd already started, which can be a gap year. And the intention was, I guess it would be a gap year. But when I, if, if you haven't started college yet, you're in high school or you just graduated, take a gap year between high school and college. I think that's the ideal kind of scenario, right? Because then you have much less family breathing down your neck and you get a sense of, okay, what should I actually study in school? A lot of people, they just go in blind. They read some things online. If they're really smart, maybe they email some people in their field and learn from them. And then they end up studying something that actually isn't super relevant for what they want to do down the line. Or they have no idea what they want to do. You've been sitting in a classroom for 18 years. You should have no idea what you want to do. Go work somewhere. Even if it's something you're not sure if you want to do it, go do it for a year. If you end up loving it and you decide you don't want to go back, great. You have actually just saved yourself four years of your life, probably a good chunk of money and probably a lot of pain and heartache. If you find out that you actually hate it, good. Now you know that you hate that field you were in and you can go study to go join a different field. Awesome. Yeah. And I can't think of a better way to end it there. So Zach Slayback, thank you so much for joining me. Everyone should go check out your book, How to Get Ahead. Of course, the website and the newsletter, you post some really great articles, especially if people want to know more about cold emailing. It's your course it was super helpful. It was really an, an integral part of, of how I was able to get some of the early, some of the guests on the podcast. And it's funny, when I emailed you, I actually forgot that I got the like the template from your course until afterwards. So I was like, okay, I hope he uh, doesn't mind that. But uh, yeah, I've communicated with you in the past. So that, that's a warm email. That's not that's a cool true. email. That's true. So. Again, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks so much, Charlie. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.